Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. <clears throat> well, we've been studying Paul, the, uh, the letters of our Lord to the churches of Asia in Revelation 2 and 3. We come to the last and in so many ways the uh, most challenging of the letters uh, to Revelation chapter 3 and verse 14 where we read the letter to the church of Laodicea. Revelation chapter 3, let's read together starting in verse 14, as I say. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither hot, no, excuse me, neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth, because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Let us pray once more together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that we too, being undeceived about our state and warned about the dangers all around us, that we too might give heed to such a word and that we too might be those who are victorious, who overcome, who conquer over the enemies of this world. We pray that we too may be with our Lord and dressed in white, truly made rich on that day, covered in the righteousness of Christ alone, and that uh, there with eyes open to see the wonders about us, that we would be thankful for such a word from such a one who loves our souls. And it's in him that we pray. Amen. These seven letters to the churches in the book of Revelation, you might know, have sometimes been interpreted as giving us an overview of the seven ages of church history, uh, from the apostles until the return of Christ. And since the same school of interpreters who believe this look for the return of Christ at any time, that must mean that we are in the final, that is, the Laodicean age of church history. At the beginning, when I first explained the letters to you, I gave you several reasons why, from the text, we should not read it that way. But I also said that if the shoe fits, we must wear it. This is what the Spirit continues to say to all the churches, even today. And we do find ourselves at a time of unparalleled wealth, with little zeal for Christ and his gospel. And therefore, this letter to a lukewarm church does seem to be especially relevant to our time. Well, that's saying it very nicely, isn't it? 
John Stott, for his part, was much more pointed. He wrote, perhaps none of the letters is more appropriate to the Western church at the beginning of the 21st century than this. It describes vividly the respectable, nominal, rather sentimental, skin-deep religiosity which is so widespread among us today. Our Christianity is flabby and anemic. We appear to, ta to have taken a lukewarm bath of religion. I mean, for, for an Englishman, them's fighting words, let me tell you. Well, just as we have our problems, they certainly had theirs. And so let's begin with me telling you a little bit about their problems. First and foremost, Laodicea was known throughout the world of that day for its wealth. The, the city was situated at a fertile river valley at the intersection of some important trade routes. But uh, notably, it had a prosperous banking trade and an industrial center there. Just uh, how rich were they? Well, in AD 60, there was an earthquake that damaged the city of Laodicea. And when the dust settled, well, the accounts differ, but either the city didn't ask for the customary subsidy or they actually turned down the Roman government's offer to finance their rebuilding. But either way, they said, it's okay, Rome, we got it. We'll pay for the restoration of our own city out of our own very deep pockets. The Roman historian Tacitus wrote, Laodicea rose from the ruins by the strength of her own resources and with no help from us, that is, from the Romans. It was very wealthy and it was self-sufficient. The city was infected with affluenza. And as usual, when the culture is infected, the church catches the plague. Well, it was famous for its wealth, for its gold. Second, it was a city famous for its wool. The surrounding countryside had a particular brand, or I should say a breed of black-wooled sheep that had a glossy sheen to them. Uh, very desirable wool. There, there was at least four different kinds of outer garments that were made there from this coveted wool and shipped to Belk and Macy's department stores all over the ancient world. Uh, part of what kept the Laodicean coffers overflowing. And finally, the city was known for its medicine. There was a famous medical school in Laodicea, a school that produced not only doctors, but some very popular medicines, including salve, or ointment, for the ears and the eyes. Aristotle wrote about how they would, quote, prepare the Phrygian powder for the cure of ophthalmia. Ophthalmia. Ophthalmia? Yeah. See Dr. Kellum. Um, so uh, this, they had this eye salve there that was exported in tablet form and then ground into paste mixed with nard. And it, it seemed to be about the only medicine used to treat eye problems in the ancient world of that day. And this town had a monopoly on it. And so this was the celebrated city. As one man wrote, Laodicea was the first century Bank of America, Macy's, and Mayo Clinic all rolled into one. And however, the church must have prospered there in the early days, as Paul makes some reference to them in, their, in his letters, 
They had now fallen on evil times. Of all the seven letters, Laodicea received the strongest rebuke, with, you notice, no praise at all from the Lord. Why? What was going on there? John Stott again. It had not been infected with the poison of any special sin or error. We read neither of heretics nor of evildoers, nor of persecutors. But the Christians in Laodicea are neither hot nor cold, verse 15. They lack wholeheartedness. So that the adjective Laodicean has now passed into our English vocabulary to describe someone who is lukewarm in religion or politics or in any other sphere. Well, to this lukewarm church, let's consider first the Lord's correction and then secondly the Lord's counsel. And we'll be making some application along the way. First, the Lord's correction. The Lord's correction. It's important to note that this church that received the most stinging rebuke was the one that was the most materially blessed. Think about that next time you ask for material blessings. The church that received the most stinging rebuke was the one that had everything. They didn't have any false teaching mentioned here, but their, the true teaching was simply not affecting them deeply. They had become spiritually apathetic. They had all they needed in a worldly sense, and that was their downfall. At least that's the only thing mentioned here. The Smyrna church, as we read in chapter 2, verse 9, was a church that was financially poor, but spiritually rich. The Laodicean church, just the opposite. Financially rich and spiritually poor. Uh, one author diagnosed this spiritual sickness that's reflected everywhere in our culture today, uh, 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 calling it affluenza, affluenza. Uh, quote, an array of psychological maladies such as, interesting, isolation, boredom, passivity, and lack of motivation engendered in adults, teenagers, and children by the possession of great wealth. Affluenza is what affects our world, and whatever affects the world infects the church. And, and you could see it all around us, right? I mean, uh, meh, whatever, apathy is the way. It's chic. Uh, boys don't build forts, but they sit and play lots of Xbox. And uh, thank you for the note about the... Uh, Jackbox, by the way, I will be buying that for the, for the kids later. Um, the style is untucked shirts. The effect is untapped potential. The, the norm is to be kind of relationally unattached, uncommitted, um, disengaged. This is the spirit of the age. Now, there's no sin, of course, in being rich, but the Bible often reminds us that riches can be a snare and certainly are the root of all kinds of evil. The real question is, whom do we serve, God or mammon? Is our wealth a stewardship for God's glory and the good of others and the work of the gospel, or is it leading us to care more about earthly blessings than Christ's kingdom? Is our wealth something that we possess, or does it possess us? Jesus, you notice, rebukes here specifically the self 
satisfaction of this rich church. They had a false estimate of themselves based on how well everything was going, how much blessing they enjoyed. Verse 17, because you say, I'm rich, I become wealthy, and have need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Augustine wrote, the beginning of intelligence is to know yourself and to know yourself a sinner. It was something that this church did not understand, thinking that they had all that they needed, if they were well. If Christ is treasured in your heart and honored in your life, it will be first as a savior of sinners. And he who has been forgiven much, the same will love much. But these lukewarm Laodiceans had forgotten the very first thing. They didn't recognize themselves. In fact, to be wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked with so little of Christ. You cannot think of yourself highly and Christ highly at the same time. You can't. And it's one more reason why we always need sound and clear biblical instruction because it's far too easy for us to become self-deceived and therefore to become cold and apathetic. Ignorance and apathy are the great enemies of the Laodicean Christian. It's like the story I heard about with the preacher telling his congregation by way of rebuke that there was only two things wrong with them. That's ignorance and apathy. And after the service, two of the elders were walking out, and one of them said, I just don't know what he meant by that. The other one said, I don't know, and I don't care. Ignorance and apathy. Well, you'll want to know, how can we know lukewarm Christians? How can we know if we are lukewarm Christians? How could we describe them? I mean, do they go to church? Well, of course they go to church. That's what's expected of them. And you remember what God says of such in Isaiah, they... They come near me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up of the rules taught by men. They're doing what's required in a heartless way. Are they just blending in with the crowd then? Well, I suppose in some ways they stand out for fitting in wherever they go. Uh, standing out for fitting in might seem like it's an uh, um, uh, oxymoron, but in the church or in the world, half-hearted people following Christ are always choosing whatever the way the wind's blowing, you see. Whatever is popular is chosen over what is right, especially when they're in conflict, because people care more about what people think than what God thinks if they are half-hearted in religion. Woe to you, says the Lord, when all men speak well of you. Uh, a sure sign that you're on both sides, that you're half hot, half cold, and therefore all lukewarm. Well, are they generous? Well, maybe they give if it doesn't impinge on them personally. Remember David's words, though, I will not offer that which costs me nothing. In general, uh, lukewarm people have the Lord as part of their lives, not a priority. Jesus could therefore say, well, I, I wish that you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm... And neither cold nor hot, 
I will vomit you out of my mouth. You make me sick, says the Lord. Well, any of you feeling the need to heat up a little bit? Can you set the thermostat a little for us here? We need to be warmer. We're feeling a little lukewarm. But this is point one, our Lord's correction. But now there's an important point that I want to I want to be clear on before we move on. And, and this is one that's really uh, heavily discussed today, for reasons I'll mention in a moment. Why is the Lord saying that it will be better to be cold than lukewarm? Right? I could wish that you were either hot or cold. But because you're lukewarm, I'm spitting you out. Well, why better to be cold than lukewarm? Are we better off frigid than tepid? Isn't it better to be at least a weak, half-hearted Christian than some non-believer or even a blatant sin lover? You ever think about this question? This is a good question. We must begin at the cross of Christ. And as we started the worship today, remembering how it is that God became incarnate in order to be tortured to death at the hands of his rebellious creatures, shedding his precious blood for you while you were yet his enemy, in order to deliver you from eternal hell torments and to bequeath upon you not only everlasting life, but his own kingdom and glory. So C.S. Lewis put it well at this point, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, is of infinite importance, but the one thing it cannot be is moderately important. In other words, it would be better to oppose him than to insult him with a tepid, insipid, yawning allegiance, which he says absolutely nauseates him. The Bible, therefore, speaks about us seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, of laying up treasures in heaven, of counting everything lost compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ, our Lord, etc. Zeal is a good biblical word that was once a more important part of a Christian vocabulary, but it has fallen on hard times. Some time ago, I was talking to a German woman. She's a researcher in town, but she was very open to talk to me about God, and she said that religion is good as long as people weren't too devoted. Her words. I wondered to myself uh, what she would think if her husband said that he wasn't too devoted. Um, I didn't say anything, of course, but I, I just thought, uh, what are you talking about, woman? Of course, she's simply reflecting the spirit of our age. The problem is more with me than with her. I don't expect her to say anything else. I think, what's wrong with me? Where is my zeal? Why am I ashamed to be a zealous Christian? And if I am not zealous, what possible hope would there be for her or people like her? As a minister, there's a verse, a couple of verses that give me grief all the time. One of it is Jeremiah 48:10. Cursed is he who does the work of the Lord with slackness. Or uh, to change the picture, John, John Duncan, uh, Rabbi Duncan, as he's often called, missionary to the Jews of Hungary, he once remarked, quote, Jews who have read the New Testament have often said to me, it's all very good, but Christians don't believe it themselves. Why should Jews? There were a great many Jews in Laodicea 
at that time, we know from history, that perhaps they were asking a similar question. Why should we believe it if even the Christians don't believe it? Christians blanch to hear such questions because we all know just too well how we have fostered that false impression. And we sing Amazing Grace, and we have to confess, it doesn't always seem very amazing. Why is it that it's better to be cold than to be lukewarm? Well, imagine a train that's completely off the tracks. Well, a train that's completely off is at least leaving the tracks clear for other trains. But a train that's half on, half off, well, that stops traffic completely. And a lukewarm Christian is like that second train. It's not only in bad shape itself, it's hindering others from putting their faith in God, preaching a wicked lie. Christ warmly approves of enthusiasm, fervor, fire, passion, even if the world, and too often the church, disapprove of them. Eclampadius, the Swiss reformer, said, how much more would a few good and fervent men effect in the ministry than multitudes of lukewarm ones? And he was right. A lack of zeal makes us like the priest and the Levite who walk by on the other side when there's a need. Zeal, rather, has eyes to see. Zeal has a heart to feel. Zeal have hands, has hands to work and feet to travel. And so it is that the Lord is nauseated by lukewarmness. It's worse than being cold. But I should note one more thing before I go on. I, I will note that in, in just the, the, the last couple of years, many commentaries have taken a different view of this passage. Um, they, they say that uh, this isn't about lacking zeal. This is about being useless as Christians. You're like, useless? I don't understand. And, and this is a big warning uh, whenever you have to put in a whole bunch of historical, to, to choose a whole bunch of historical details out of the mass of historical and geographical details, right? Choose a couple details and put it in your interpretation when there's nothing demanding that, and, and then read it, right? To read it by putting things into context, eisegesis, reading into things. Well, uh, let me explain. I'm going to give you somebody's opinion from uh, who, who believes it so I can explain why I disagree here. Here's a representative opinion, modern opinion. The hot water of nearby Hierapolis, thought to have healing properties, and the water that made the public baths of the city famous throughout the Greco-Roman world, and the cold water of nearby Colossae, so refreshing, are both useful. Okay. There in the river valley, not too far to one side or the other, there was a place with hot springs and uh, a place that had some mountain springs. Those are both useful in a certain way. But the water of Laodicea neither tastes good for drinking nor is hot enough for the baths to be a healing agent. And so in, by this interpretation, it's not the spiritual enthusiasm of the Laodiceans that's lu lukewarm, but the quality of their work. It is ineffective, unproductive. These Christians were not denying the faith, but they weren't doing anything on its behalf. They were useless to the cause. So 
it's not an absolute difference because if you're useless, you're obviously lukewarm at best, right? But I only mention this because you, know, you probably have study Bibles, perhaps, or if you do any reading or whatever, you, you may come across this. It does seem to be, in the last few years, now become the majority report. And I mention this because it's a, it's a certain way of reading the Bible that's becoming, I think, um, well, much too popular, where people, you know, you, 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 would, you would obviously read it one way until you bring in some original historical details, right? of the billions of facts out there in the ancient world. You bring in some other ones, and you say, well, you know, um, brings in some other considerations. But the question is, of course, would any reasonable reader, especially in, in, at the time, ever think of the, of the water in nearby cities? I mean, if I said that you rich Christians in Blacksburg are neither hot nor cold but lukewarm, what would you think? Would you say, well... Gee, he's comparing us to the hot springs in the northern counties or to the mountain springs just down here, just down the valley from the church. And he says that we're not being very productive. Is that what you would think? You wouldn't think that. Um, th those things are foreign to any normal reader. They wouldn't enter your mind. And so in general, I'm saying we need to avoid reading in historical background that has no basis in the passage. The Bible, in general, is written so that the average believer can pick it up and interpret it. It's written to the average believer, not the scholar, not those who have degrees in comparative geography or ancient history. Um, things like riches or medicine or clothing are in the context, and these are fair game. But things that are not in the context should not be brought in, um, especially from other cities, right? So even if you didn't know these things were associated with Laodicea, you'd get the same interpretation. If you knew nothing about the riches, medicine, and clothing in context, you would get the, you would get the point. That's where the Bible is written to be. Beware of those who are giving you some secret background knowledge that will overturn the natural reading by making some connection that even the original readers would never make. End of mini-sermon, back to Revelation 3, we've considered the Lord's, um, his rebuke, uh, his correction. We now turn to the Lord's counsel, the Lord's counsel. The Lord Jesus has never given the prize of intimate fellowship with himself to a self-satisfied, self-righteous person. His counsel, therefore, is for the Laodiceans to recognize their poverty, blindness, etc., their lukewarmness, and to be renewed in their intimate fellowship with the Lord. These Laodiceans, um, skilled merchants that they were, were called to come to Christ to do some business with Him. Only He could enrich their poverty, clothe their nakedness, and enlighten their blindness. Verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. The people had become myopic. Perhaps the wealth of their town had blinded them, but they could no longer see themselves as they were so, to quote the hymn, they needed to turn their eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face so that the things of earth would then grow strangely dim 
in the light of his glory and grace. Or to change the hymn, these sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore, were to come without money, without money, without money, come to Jesus Christ and buy. Joseph Hart. Well, Jesus continues his counsel to them, therefore, in verse 19, saying, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous. Be zealous. Again, uh, one, one more reason why we should take this as uh, spiritual fervor, right? Uh, the remedy for their lukewarmness is to be zealous, uh, a word that's also used, by the way, for things that are boiling hot in the Bible. The, the boiling hot word is the same word as the zeal word, same word anyway. Boiling hot. Be hot. Be zealous. That is his counsel. It's hard to say if zeal is a virtue on its own. I'm not sure that it is. You always need something to be zealous about. Uh, you might think that uh, zeal is just the temperature of every other grace that you have. Zeal is the spiritual heat of your love, joy, peace, work, prayer, and so on. It's not so much a grace on its own as a quality of every other grace in our Christian life. To be zealous is to be passionate, devoted, determined, single-minded. You're saying, does the Lord want us to become fanatical? Well, if by fanatical you mean wholehearted, the answer is definitely yes. But a fanatic usually means somebody who's unthinking or unreasoning, um, whose heart leaves his head behind. If that's what you mean, the answer is definitely no. That is to say, it's true, we're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and strength, but also our mind, says the Lord. We need to be thoughtful, zealous men and women, boys and girls, who are aflame for God. Well, I think that most of us have no problem being passionate about other things. Uh, most everybody's passionate about something. I, I read about a man who was uh, wearing something that said on the front, I am a fool for Christ's sake. And on the back it said, whose fool are you? I think it's true that Everyone is a fool for something or someone. Uh, the difference is that at some level, even we as people are afraid for being on fire for Christ. We, we fear as, that we are seen as Christian fanatics or extremists, a great insult in our day, or the greatest insult, politically incorrect. Um, zealous people are almost always despised in their generation. That is to say, zealous people for Christ are almost always despised in their own generation. I mean, the church didn't even approve of Wesley and Whitfield preaching passionate sermons in the open air. They called them enthusiasts and madmen, and they were reviled. Of course, they were revealed, revered by future generations for what they had done. Uh, similarly, many well-meaning Christians urged John Payton and William Carey not to waste their lives among the hostile heathen, sit-down young man. Carey was told, well, 
Carey's personal motto was the opposite of the Laodicean malaise. Remember to this day, attempt great things for God, expect great things from God. And later generations revered these men. Well, really all great men in their own way, Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, Sir Isaac Newton, Oliver Cromwell, Napoleon Bonaparte, that is to say, great for good or ill, what all notable men in history had in common was that they were men of one consuming passion, that they threw themselves into one grand pursuit. Now, I say their pursuits weren't always good ones, to say the least, and Napoleon's part, for instance. But the Bible says it is good to be zealous in a good thing, Galatians 4. It's good to be zealous in a good thing. That is to say, we who tend to, to be cool on our own need to learn to admire zeal, to seek after zeal, to encourage zeal in one another, and to recognize that, you know, zeal may make mistakes. Zeal may need redirecting. But how much more we need zeal in a Laodicean world? Meh. J.C. Ryle wrote, The church seldom needs a bridle, but often needs a spur. The church seldom needs a bridle to hold it back, but it often needs a spur to get it going. There's no danger in the Bible of having too much zeal for the glory of God. Now, you have to watch out for false zeal in the world. It's true. Um, I'm thinking now of a dream by Horatius Bonner, uh, Scottish free churchman and poet, hymn writer. Um, Bonner once had a dream that uh, in his dream, the angels took his zeal and weighed it. And the angels told him it was an excellent zeal. It weighed out at 100%. And Bonner was very gratified at that result. He was full of zeal. But next they wanted to analyze that zeal. They placed it in a crucible and they tested it with this result in his dream. 14 parts selfishness, 15 parts sectarianism, 22 parts ambition, 23 parts love to man, only 26 parts love to God. And he awoke. Uh, deeply humbled, and determined on a new consecration of his life to God with a holier zeal. The Bible has plenty of examples of zeal that's unholy. Paul, for example, noted that his fellow Jews who didn't believe, that, he says, I bear them witness, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Beware false counterfeit zeal. But true zeal, the Bible says, is very desirable and a very fruitful thing indeed. That if you are zealous, you, you must, you must do something. If you can't give, you'll work. If you can't preach, you'll pray. If you can't fight in the valley with Joshua, you'll go up in the mountain with Moses. If you can't get something done yourself, you'll give it, they'll give the Lord no rest until he raises up other workers to do it. Zeal is then contagious, just like a fire spreads um, Paul speaks about how the Corinthians' zeal stirred up the churches then of Macedonia and Achaia also. The Bible therefore tells us, Romans 12, be fervent in spirit. Or again, whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the reward. Or once again, trust in the Lord with all your heart 
Christianity is a wholehearted religion, and God wants us to be very zealous in a worthy purpose for Christian living. Zeal wins others to Christ. Where would missions be without zeal? Uh, the early preacher John Chrysostom once said, there's nothing chillier than a Christian who's not trying to save others. Zeal wins others to Christ. It's much easier also to catch cold than to give warmth. And when nobody cares, it's too easy for us not to care either. This is what happened in Laodicea. The affluenza of the town affected the church. And today, in our, in our wealthy day of meh, and whatever, we need to be encouraging one another in a fervent faith. Alexander Shields, one of the eminent Scottish covenanters, he preached a sermon in Aberdeen where he's reported to have recommended to his hearers a certain cordial. Quote, a pint of hope, three pints of faith, and nine pints of hot, hot, hot burning zeal. Well, let's take the counsel of the Lord, go to him and buy such a cordial to rekindle our fire. You notice how very clear it is from the passage that the Lord cares deeply for his churches. I mean, no matter their faults or struggles, even these lukewarm Laodiceans, he says to them, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten that these aren't stern words so much as they are compassionate ones for all their failures. These Laodiceans are still beloved of the Lord, and he is calling an uncaring people to renew the intimacy of their fellowship with him. Verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Uh, maybe you've heard this verse being used to share the gospel with non-believers. Note that its original purpose, anyway, is to speak to a church. The verb here, to dine, refers to the evening meal, that is to say, to dinner, the meal that people would linger over, where they would eat and talk in unhurried fellowship. It was the long, enjoyable fellowship meal of the day. This is the meal that Jesus wishes to share. No more nausea. How about dining together in intimate fellowship? These churches of Asia were about to face a very painful imperial persecution. These young churches of Asia were small and suffering and in many cases weak. And the power and the resources of Rome seemed limitless. The forces of darkness already seemed to be closing in all around them. These churches needed to be strong and healthy, and especially they needed Jesus. And Revelation reminds us that the living Lord is close at hand, walking in their midst. Hear my voice and renew your close fellowship with me. That is the counsel of the Lord. In conclusion, as we finish the last of these seven letters, we have learned what a terrible and wonderful thing it was to be a Christian in those early days. We've seen the church in various places hard-pressed by false prophets and false teachers, by tribulation and persecution. 
The church was being led astray or torn apart by Nicolaitans, Balaamites, a Jezebel, and the devil himself behind it all. We've seen the dilemma that new Christians were facing between Christ and Caesar and how some had not only suffered loss, but even some of them loss of life. Yet in each of these seven letters, we have found our Lord describing some mark that should characterize all the churches in all the ages, and therefore the call to hear what the Spirit is saying to all the churches, to the church in Ephesus, you remember. He called them to return to the love that they had at first, to Smyrna. They were to face persecution with courage for Christ's sake. At Pergamos, they were to champion the truth in the face of corrupt doctrine, and at Thyatira, righteousness in the face of seductive immorality. In Sardis, the Lord called the nominal church back to the inward reality of true spirituality. And at Philadelphia, the Lord called them to look outward as he opened the door to evangelism. Love, courage, righteousness, spirituality, truth, evangelism. But what the Spirit says here to Laodicea, he also says to all, we must have a Christian love and a courage to suffer and sound doctrine and holiness of life and an inward reality and an evangelistic outreach. But in all these things, we are always and ever to remember to be wholeheartedly zealous zealous for the Lord our God. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, how cold we find our hearts feel, especially after reading such words. We desire that fire that you alone can give the riches, the true riches of a spirituality that burns from the inside out. Uh, one that issues forth in truth and righteousness in evangelism and courage, uh, a love that uh, is kindled deep, that is fervent and sincere. Uh, our Father in heaven, we, we come as those poor, blind, spiritual beggars clothed with only our own rags, if not our own nakedness, that the Lord himself might give us what we so need and desire by opening that door again to our hearts. We pray that Christ would come in and dine on the inside and that the expression of these things would be known in us and through us everywhere. We pray that you would raise up from this very congregation, from this generation, those who have a fire unquenchable for our Lord Jesus.